Thank you, Emily. Morning, everybody. How are you? Super. Who's ready to study Revelation? Uh, this is great. Bummer about the uh, ice cream Olympics. Raise your hand if you're in middle school or high school in here. Oh, yeah. All right. Praying for you that it's going to work out this afternoon. Um, so, also, speaking of middle school and high school students, those of you who just went back to school, or if you have kids that are no longer in the room, that you just experienced the joy of back-to-school shopping? Yes? So, uh, the last place I lived was in the middle of Florida. We lived there for 11 years. We had a mall, but it was like barren and the worst. Uh, the Green Hills Mall, y'all, have you been there? It's amazing. I didn't think malls were still cool, but that one is. Uh, it's like this worshipful experience when you walk in there. So we went back to school shopping. And as we, we walked into the Macy's entrance, that was like the secret side entrance, so you didn't have to go through all the crowds and everything. Uh, and as the doors open and we walked in, we were immediately sort of greeted with this aroma of burnt offerings to the Lord from the cologne counter. <laughs> and then we, we took the stairway to heaven, otherwise known as an escalator, to the second floor, and immediately began to see storefront after storefront, altar after altar, showing me what the good life is, showing my middle schooler what the good life is, beckoning us to worship. The van store, beckoning us to be the trendy skater people. The uh, footlocker, beckoning us to be the sneakerheads like Pat Mahomes. Uh, North Face beckoning me to be a suburban orienteer. Uh, or you could just lay prostrate at the feet of Cinnabon. Our city is full of worship. Our city is full of worship centers like that windowless time suck of a place that we call the Green Hills Mall. And it's easy for those places to make me lose my religion, to quote R.E.M. It, it's easy for those places to make me forget about my convictions, to forget about the amount of money that's in my bank account, and just to lay everything at the feet of these things. Now, I'm blowing this out of proportion a little bit for a purpose. Because from Geodis Park to the 12 South Strip to the Ryman to the safe and comfortable streets of Creve Hall. We are beckoned everywhere to worship safety, to worship security, to worship materialism, to worship satisfaction, and to worship identity. And to find these things somewhere. We're all on the search to find satisfaction and identity somewhere. Where can I find it? 
And all these places are not necessarily bad. I'm not poo-pooing on Green Hills Mall or anything else. More so just to say, are you aware that your heart is being beckoned in those moments to worship? And those can be places that can form you, and those can be places that can deform you. Because what the book of Revelation is, is a call to look behind the curtain at what worship is possible to find. What our searching hearts can actually apprehend. And that is this glorious, luminous, majestic vision of Jesus. And after two weeks, the past two weeks, we've been spending some time as Jesus has just beginning, beginning to give us an introduction into who he is. As one who we read in the Gospels as a very ordinary man in a lot of ways. Now we get a picture of through his death, resurrection, and ascension, now we get a picture of who he is now. Like this very moment. And so he spent two weeks sort of peeling back that curtain and showing us who he is now as the risen and ascended Lord of glory. Now, he begins to put his finger on a couple of things in the church. And remember, these were written to seven churches. These are letters written to seven churches. Each church then received its own vision. All one vision, again, ultimately of the glory of Jesus from a variety of vantage points, particularly applied to the situations in these seven churches at their particular time. What we also know to be true is that this seven church thing didn't mean that once those seven churches kind of got their letters that it was over. The number seven means completion in the way that the imagery of that ancient time and period described it. And so for these seven churches to receive these letters is a way to say, and for every church thereafter, for the people of God until kingdom come, this is a word for us. So with that said, we're going to read, we don't have time to cover all seven of the letters to the churches, so we're going to cover two. A lot of them overlap in the themes, and so we're going to cover two that hit two of the major themes. So, Kat, where you at? Okay, we're going to read two passages. Revelation 1, 10 through 12. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And then this is from Revelation 2, 12 through 17. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, 
so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one ex- knows except the one who receives it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, God. So Jesus is wanting to expose two things about our city and about our church today. First, that false worship is sneaky. All throughout this passage that you just read, one of the things we're going to try to do is tell a couple of stories to describe what is happening in here, because there's so much that may be unfamiliar. False worship is one of the major themes of this passage, especially what's happening with Balaam. We're going to talk about him in a minute. So false worship is sneaky. The second thing that this describes in that imagery at the very end with the white stone and the secret manna is that Christ is supreme. So false worship is sneaky, Christ is supreme. Pergamum, to describe a little bit about what's going on in the church here and what Jesus is speaking into, we have to know a little bit about the culture, even the geography, the topography of what's going on in Pergamum at the time. Uh, Pergamum is still a place, by the way. It goes by a different name now. It goes by Bergama, but it's it's a city in Turkey. And in this city in Turkey, it is literally on top of this conical, this cone-shaped hill, 15 miles away from the Mediterranean Sea. From the top of that hill, you can see off into the sea. And this place boasted as one of the the centers for major culture and major religion of the day. It was kind of the place to go to in a very similar way to what Nashville is today. There was a 10,000-seat amphitheater for Chris Stapleton to tour. Uh, There was 20,000 parchments in this great library. In fact, parchment most likely was invented by this group of people. And so this amazing library of learning, this amazing stadium where thousands could come and worship at whatever the stage play uh, or uh, the orator came through the day. And... In that space, there was also, of course, with tons of people coming through, tourism probably a huge deal, people constantly walking up and down, whatever their version of 12 South is. There were these temples dedicated to some of the Greek gods, temples dedicated to Athena, an altar dedicated 40 feet in the air dedicated to Zeus, a famous temple to, in the same way that Ephesus and other places kind of had their god of their city, uh, the god of Pergamum was Asclepios, I think, if I said that right. And if, you don't, if I didn't, then you won't even know the difference. Uh, so let's just say Asclepios. He's known as the god of healing. He went by his further title was Asclepios Soter, which if you know Greek... Soter means savior. So Asclepios, the savior, worshipers from all around the region would flock to this temple. 
They would, this was, in a sense, the closest thing to a hospital of the day because he was the God of healing. The priests mediated, and part of the way that they mediated this healing is literally by caring for wounds and things like that. The other way is this was also, have you ever seen, you know, on uh, the, the uh, staff, the medical staff with the two snakes wrapped around it? That's where this came from. Part of the way that he was worshipped was in the form of a snake. They would release non-venomous snakes into this temple. And you would be allowed to lay down on the ground with said snakes. And if they touched you, that was sort of a form of blessing or healing. These were a hungry people. These were a searching people looking for satisfaction, looking for identity, looking for what made them them, looking for hope and help. In addition, all of these temples uh, were places of prostitution, of debauchery, of drunkenness, uh, almost as a form of this temple worship. And it was culturally acceptable for the most part. In addition to that, you had all that going on. In addition to that, you also had, this was the administrative center of the Roman Empire in Asia. This was the place, potentially the same place, where John was initially denied that he would not take the incense and put it on the altar and say, Hail Caesar. It is very possibly Antipas, who's spoken of as dying for his faith, potentially could be the very same thing that he was also refusing to do there. This was the place where uh, the, the Caesar of the day, in this day, Domitian, the emperor, the Roman god, the lord and king, was venerated. And so people would compromise in all kinds of ways for the sake of, I'm, I'm going to venerate, I don't know if I really believe that, but I'm just going to do the incense on the altar just so I can get by. Because my livelihood depends on it, because my financial security depends on it, I will just go with the flow. And so it, it makes sense when, I mean, this is strong language. Look at verse 13. I know, I know where you live, where Satan's throne is. Wow. I don't know exactly what that means, but what it seems to say is there is a unique stronghold that the principalities and the powers of darkness have on this city. What are the places in our city where the principalities and the powers of darkness have their hold? And is it possible that some places over others actually have stronger or weaker grips in that way? It would make sense then why for as this Asclepios, God of healing, to be considered the Savior, for Caesar to be venerated as Lord. Perhaps these are some of the reasons why this would be called Satan's throne, because this is satanic worship, a denial of King Jesus, and a worshiping of anything else other than him. And because of that, as you worship hollow things, so you become a hollow person. And so the culture was, in many ways, circling the drain. The church at Pergamum, though, as Jesus describes here, is a faithful witness. 
they had seen martyrs who had gone before and died for their faith. Most likely, this was a church that was planted somewhere after AD 70 when the temple uh, was sacked and Christians from around the region dispersed all across uh, the, the greater area of Asia Minor. And in that time, somewhere in those 20 years, a church had begun to be established. They had undergone persecution for their faith, suffering for their faith. But then he goes on to say, and this is so true of church in that day, and this is so true of church in our day. He says, you guys look so good on the outside. And not just, you're not just putting on a show. Like, there's legitimate, genuine faith in this place. Legitimate orthodoxy in this place. But Jesus says in verse 14, but I have a few things against you. Now, just think about that for a minute. This is Jesus, the all-seeing king of the universe. And the first thing he does before he says, I've got a couple things against you, is he gives them, he gives them some encouragement. He's like, guys, you're doing, you're doing a great job. Midtown Creve Hall, you guys are so faithful. You're doing such a good job. But there are a couple sneaky things in here that I need to let you know about really because I love you, because I'm for you, because I want to call you out of darkness and into light. This is the heart of Jesus as he comes towards his people and as he comes towards us this morning. And then he goes on to tell, well, he sort of refers back to this story of Balaam. He says, some of you are holding to the teaching of Balaam. What in the world is a Balaam? Balaam was this prophet. If you go back to Numbers 22, you can read Numbers 22 through 25. It references it again. It makes a little more sense in Numbers 31 as it comments back on the day and on the issue. Essentially, here's what's happening. This is Israel wandering in the wilderness. They've been, uh, God has taken them out of Egypt, crossed the Red Sea, wandering around. This is probably around year 38, maybe, or so of their wandering. Don't quote me on that. I just made that up. But it's somewhere towards the end of their journey, and we know their journey was about four years. So as they're nearing the end of their journey, what God is doing with them is bringing them into the promised land. And the people in the land... The Canaanites, the Moabites in this section, are starting to notice that this group that seems to have God on their side, that pillars of cloud and pillars of fire, crazy things are happening with them, and they're getting closer to us. And we feel threatened by that. So Balak is the king of Moab, and he calls on this prophet Balaam. He's not necessarily a godly prophet. He's more of a, a seer in the ancient day, a fortune teller, a communicator with the dead, with the gods. And he calls Balaam and he says, hey, Balaam, could you do me a solid? Could you ask God to, maybe the God of those people even, to curse them instead of bless them? Could you keep them away from me because they're threatening my kingdom instead of letting them, what I think is going to happen, is overtake me? So initially, uh, Balaam says, you know, and most likely what's on the other side of this, by the way, is some cold hard cash. You do this for me, I'll give you whatever you want. 
And so Balaam goes and he sort of does his due diligence. He says, God, Yahweh, uh, king of heaven, will you please curse your people instead of blessing them? Of course, shocker, God says, nah, I'm not going to do that. So he goes back to Balak and he says, hey, Balak, uh, Yahweh said that he's not going to do that. Balak says, can you just go ask him again? Just like maybe one more time, just ask him, see what he says. Goes back to God again. Uh, This time God says, okay, uh, you can go. Go meaning go to Balak to be close to him. He was calling from him and sending messengers from afar. This is when he's deciding whether or not he's going to go and actually uh, hang in Moab for a minute. And he says, okay, God says, okay, you can go as long as you say what I tell you to say. He says, yeah, sure, sure, great, I'll do that. Goes back, uh, sends messengers back to Balak, yes, I'll come to you. Begins his journey, gets on a donkey. Is this sounding familiar? Remember the weird part in the Bible where the donkey talks? That's now. <laughs> gets on a donkey. God knows Balak, or sorry, Balaam's heart is rotten. He knows that he's chasing after money and not actually the heart of God. So as he's riding his donkey there, the donkey all of a sudden comes to a complete stop. Balaam begins to hit the donkey, kick the donkey, and the donkey winces, and then, but eventually completely collapses and will go no further because the donkey can see the angel of the Lord is blocking the road. Balaam can't see it. And because Balaam can't see it, the donkey turns around and goes, do you see what's happening here? He literally says, will you stop hitting me? I've been faithful to you all my life. You've always ridden on this nice soft back right here, and now this is how you treat me? That's weird enough. Uh, In that moment, then the angel of the Lord comes to Balaam, and he sees what's actually going to happen. Once again, he re-ups and says, okay, I'll do what you said. I'm going to only tell them what you told me to say. Makes it all the way to Balak. And as he makes it to Balak, he asks three times, for the Lord to curse. Will you please curse this people so I can get my money? And at the end of those three times, the Lord continues to say no. And then as he's about to walk away in shame and ride that donkey that just talked to him all the way back home, he totally redeems himself. And he has this sneaky idea. He says, why don't Instead of doing all this crazy business with asking God to curse them, why don't you just have some of those nice young ladies over there invite them to the temple? Just invite them to worship your gods. Like, you know, just ask them for a little double date. It'd be no big deal. And in the sneakiness, in the sort of subversive calling away from the Lord and into the temple of another god, where great brokenness, sexual deviancy, and all the rest also took place, he knew that that was a weak spot for the Israelites. And he knew that that's a weak spot for you and me. Because it says that there was a stumbling block that was created. A trap is what that word means, like a mousetrap. Because moral failure doesn't happen all at once. It happens one Small compromise at a time. One small compromise led Balaam to sell out for money. 
one small compromise led Israelites to sell out for sex. Jesus is saying, be careful, church. Money and sex are powerful. And they are subversive. And they're easy to hide and to be sneakily sort of wooed away from the Lord and into these places where they feel so close to true. They feel so close to reality. They feel so close to wholeness. But they always come up lacking. So this is what Paul Tripp says about sex and money. He says, sex and money are both from the creator's hands. Both are beautiful in themselves, but both have become distorted and dangerous by means of the fall. Both have the perverse power to master your heart, and in doing so, determine the direction of your life. Both give you a buzz that you're in control, while at the same time becoming the master that progressively chains you to their control. Both offer you an inner sense of well-being while having no capacity whatsoever to satisfy your heart. Oof. Both seduce you with the prospect of contentment-producing pleasure, but both leave you empty and craving more. Both hold out the possibility of finally being satisfied, but instead cause you to envy whoever it is that has more and better than you do. And here's the kicker. Remember, this is, this is Jesus saying, some among you, meaning the church is being called to the carpet collectively because there's also a sort of a letting, well, we're just, we know they're kind of doing that thing, but you know, we don't want to rock the boat. The church of Jesus Christ has been strangely silent and reticent in both areas. Sex and money tempt the church as much as they tempt the world because they're so close to what Jesus can give but yet ultimately are like drinking salt water. What small compromises right now might Jesus be noodling around in there, in your heart, in your world, in your workplace, in your home? What small compromises in the way of your money? What small compromises in the way of your sexuality? Both things that are good in and of themselves, gifts from God. Jesus is now inviting us collectively this morning into the light. Because he says, verse 16, repent. Meaning, metanoia, the word for repent, is change your mind. Meaning, I want to change your mind about this. Because I know that you believe you're ultimately on the search. Your heart is on the search to worship something. Something that will give you the satisfaction that your heart craves. Something that will give you the unshakable identity that can only be placed on you actually from outside of you. Because we're on the search for those things, we will ultimately find them, not in and of themselves, but in the truth behind those things. In the longing that our heart has for identity, we will find it in the one we were created to get our identity from. In the one that we were longing for all the time to find our searching heart of satisfaction. We're meant to find Jesus. And so what we're going to do in this little moment that we have, Christopher and band are going to come up for a minute uh, and lead us through a time of repentance. Lead us through a time where in the quiet of your heart, in the quiet of your seat, as you sit here, um, 
just between you and the Lord that if there's anything that he may be pricking in you right now, anything he's asking you to call into the light with him that has been sitting in darkness, this is now a moment that you have for that. So would you take uh, this moment? We'll be invited to sing here in a minute and let the Lord work in you by his word. Oh, 
just grace Grant us wisdom Grant us faith Stay seated and sing that with us So we have the Lord speaking to his church this morning in ways that he knows we are searching and longing for ultimately what can only be sourced in him. And he gives us two images here at the very end that we can hook our faith on as we head back out into this world that is going to call us and woo us in all kinds of ways to lose our religion. And instead, he gives us these two images. The first, he says, to the one who conquers, I will give hidden manna. Harkening back to the time when the Israelites are wandering again in the wilderness and what they are showered with every morning is this light flaky substance that was eventually known as like, what is this? And that's the word for manna in Hebrew. And so they got some, what is this every morning? And it began to be their only satisfaction because it was all that they could have. And at least for a little while, it was good. And they enjoyed it. And then eventually that began to wear off. And Jesus is asking us this morning to find our satisfaction again where you might feel it wearing off. To find your satisfaction again in him, the secret manna, the manna from heaven. And this is something that John is hearing now, probably with ears resounding what he had written down. In John 6, when Jesus says in his presence, I am the bread of life. I am the manna from heaven. And the life The manna that I give is my life. Jesus is one who has said, I will come and I will satisfy you 
in every way that you need it. I am the intimacy that you long for in sex. I am the transcendent experience that you long to be caught up with in something bigger than yourself. I am the security, the everlasting security that will never leave you nor forsake you. That is who I am. It's what money can't buy. And in those places, he says, source that security from me. Source that enjoyment from me. And he says, because this bread that I'm giving you is my life, I'm actually one who is willing to give my literal life. And he's speaking in the past tense now because it's already happened. He is one, this Jesus is one who has given his life as one because, look at verse 17. Sorry, verse 16. I will come to you soon if you do not repent and war against you with the sword of my mouth. The war of God is against those who have not repented and put their faith in Jesus. His sword is drawn, and this morning is an opportunity to lay down our life before the one who has already laid down his life, taken the war and the wrath and the judgment of God on himself for all of the places that you and I have worshipped at other altars. And the second image is this one of a white stone. And there's like eight different possibilities for what that could mean, so I'm not going to guess. But here's what we do know. It says, on that stone will be a name written on it that no one knows but you. This is speaking of identity. In the ways that we look, your, our sexuality or our monetary, our bank account, our house, our who we sleep next to, all of these things we look to define our okayness. I'm okay because I have these things that say I'm okay. And Jesus says, no, actually, the only one who can say you're okay is me, the author and perfecter of you. And I speak not only you're okay, but well done. You are my child. I crown you with robe and ring. This is the identity that Jesus has for his people. And so this morning, he asks you to source your satisfaction in him like manna in the wilderness and all those places where it may be wearing off to walk back to him. And some of this is just walking by faith and trusting that he actually will satisfy as I say no to what he says to say no to. And that I can actually more and more build my identity in places that most days seem kind of flimsy because I can't see them. But he says, try me, test me, put your faith, put your hope, put your security in me. So here's where we're going to leave it. Verse 17 says, he who has an ear, let him hear. This is talking about spiritual hearing. And how do we become more attuned spiritually to hear? It is only a gift of grace by the Spirit's power that we can get any of this, that any of this will make sense to us now or any time in the next week. This is a call to pray. This is a call to ask the Spirit, Spirit, would you give me ears to hear? Would you give me eyes to see that I actually can believe and feel that you are my satisfaction and believe and feel that you are my identity? And so we're going to do that. Uh, there's a number of ways that we have uh, been putting in our way the past year to pray more consistently as a congregation. 
So the prayer corner, uh, as always, is back. If there's just a space that you can have to pray a little more consistently, have someone to pray with you if you don't even have the words, this morning would be another opportunity for that. We pray at 845 every morning before our Sunday service. Uh, There's been prayer books at the back, prayer testimonies that happen up here. And the very last thing uh, that I want to do is invite up Robin Dillard. Way to go, Robin. So we've begun a corporate prayer rhythm. Uh, You may have noticed random people coming up and praying for stuff over the past month. Uh, And each week we're trying to pray in the month for something different. So the first week of every month, we're praying for needs in our congregation. The second week of the month, we're praying for needs in our city. The third week of the month, we're praying for needs in our nation. And the fourth week of the month, we're praying for needs in the world. Would you help us with that? Uh, 